so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Russ Schaefer-Landau to talk about moral philosophy in the landscape of metaethics. Russ Schaefer-Landau serves as a professor of philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's the author of many books, including Moral Realism, A Defense, Whatever Happened to Good and Evil, The Fundamentals of Ethics, and Living Ethics. He serves as the editor of Oxford Studies and Metaethics and previously served as the president of the American Philosophical Association Central Division in 2021. He's currently working on a larger collaborative project that seeks to offer a new vindication of a non-natural moral realism entitled The Moral Universe due out by Oxford in 2023. This project focuses on the metaphysical and normative dimensions of morality. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Schaefer Landau, thank you so much for joining us here on the Digital Public Square podcast. I've really been looking forward to this conversation in particular because some of my studies have taken me into the realm of metaethics and moral philosophy. And this is a really not only intriguing area of study, but also something that's really needed as we think about the nature of ethics, the nature of kind of public ethics and even social ethics is defining our terms. What do we mean when we use certain terminology? But before we dive into some of those topics, I want to hear a little bit about your story. I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and kind of your journey into studying philosophy formally. Well, I grew up in in an environment where there was no, I didn't know any academics. I'd never heard of philosophy before. And I just through happenstance was uh, working in a hotel kitchen when I was 14 over the summer. And the head chef in the kitchen was a philosophy grad student at Columbia. And he took me under his wing and he gave me some Nietzsche and some Camus to read. I don't know what he saw in me uh, to, <laughs> to point me in that direction, but he did. And he was kind enough to you know, have some conversations with me and answer some questions. And I said, wow, this is, this is really a whole new world that seems very cool. So I read on my own in high school. You know, I was not a serious student of philosophy by any stretch, but then I went to college thinking, yeah, I want to be a philosophy major. And 
I recall the first course I took in college was not a turn on, let's put it that way. So I was sort of struggling for a while, but then I eventually got my footing and uh, came back to philosophy. And fortunately, when I, uh, I, I dropped out of school for a year because I wasn't sure what I was doing in college. And when I came back, I had the very good fortune to take classes with Roderick Chisholm and Martha Nussbaum, who are phenomenal philosophers and amazing teachers. And uh, the rest is history. That's fantastic. That's kind of a, a way to be thrown into the middle of it is to get Camus and Nietzsche uh, that way. I know for me, even when I was initially kind of exposed to a lot of these concepts, it was just felt very boring and dry and disconnected. It just didn't feel like it really made sense of things. But it was when you have a certain professor or you have someone investing in you, it kind of changes everything. And that's how it felt for me is kind of the whole, this whole new world opened up that I didn't realize existed prior to it. And that's one of the reasons that I was excited to have you on the podcast, because hopefully we can be doing some of those things for our listeners as well as exposing to new, some new ideas and to kind of saying, hey, there's a lot more going on in terms of ethics than often we think about. One of the things that I've done in the classroom and I've recommended here on the podcast as well as your excellent work, The Fundamentals of Ethics from Oxford. This has come out in a couple different editions now, but in this work, you kind of give a wide overview, kind of a landscape, 50,000 foot view of various ethical systems and theories, the nature of metaethics, et cetera. And you divide that work into three kind of areas, value theory, normative ethics, and meta-ethics, which we're going to talk a little bit more here soon. But I wanted to see if you could kind of open up um, and help us to see some of the questions that each of these areas address and what role do they play in ethical development and ethical theory? Sure thing. So value theory is questions, is as it sounds, namely it's questions about what is valuable, what things are good, and what things are to use a fancy word, disvaluable, what things are bad. And in particular, the focus is on questions of what sorts of things are good in and of themselves, not just as a means to something else that's good, like money. There's nothing valuable in and of itself with a piece of paper that's green, say, or whatever color the currency is. But uh, the question rather is not what things are good as a, as a way of helping you to get to other things, but what things in and of themselves are worth pursuing pursuing for their own sake. That's the central question in value theory. When it comes to normative ethics, I know we're going to throw around a lot of terms. I'm going to try to be as jargon-free as possible, but there is some jargon here. As far as normative ethics, the fundamental question there is what's the basic principle or the basic principles of morally right action? Is the golden rule, for instance, the, the foundational, central, fundamental principle that explains all of our moral duties? Is it instead something like utilitarianism, which is the view that an act is morally right just in case it maximizes overall happiness or any number of other competing views? As also within normative ethics, there's a lot of attention nowadays, especially paid to questions of what's virtuous and what's vicious, where vicious doesn't mean nasty, but rather just exemplifying vice and the connections of how is virtue and vice related to matters of what's right and wrong? That's a very vexed question within normative ethics. But if you wanted to just drill down and try to identify one single question at the heart of it, what is it that makes right actions right? What is the fundamental principle of our moral duty? And then there's meta-ethics, 
which zooms out and takes a step back and doesn't try to answer substantive questions about what's good or about what's right, but rather asks, what are we doing when we're asking those questions? We're making affirmations that something is right or something is good. Are we just voicing our personal opinions? Are we instead trying to report on some kind of objectively correct set of moral standards, something else? How do we gain moral knowledge if we do? What kind of rational authority, if any, does morality have over our lives? These are more, quote, meta questions about morality itself, rather than sort of intramural substantive questions about trying to identify and enumerate our moral duties or the proper ethical ambitions that we ought to have as human beings. Uh, before we jump into kind of the realm of metaethics and digging deep on that, um, I want to kind of ask a framing question because you've, I've even heard it in your own language that sometimes we often kind of interchangeably use ethics and morality. But there are some who see these as describing kind of different realities, even though they're intricately related, they do describe something a little bit more distinct. What is that? What, what do those words mean? And is there any distinction or can we just use them interchangeably? I use them interchangeably. Uh, and other people don't. You're right, you're right to know, Jason, that uh, these terms, like a lot of philosophy terms, admit of different interpretations and different meanings, depending on who's using them. Some people think of ethics as an essentially social phenomenon, whereas morality can be applied just to an individual or in, an individual's conduct. Myself, I think there's this big tent called moral philosophy. You could call it ethical philosophy as well. When you try to ask about the standards of right conduct, you could ask about the standards of ethical conduct or moral conduct. And for me, they're synonyms. But for you know, other guests on your show might uh, regard that differently. I don't think there's a uniquely correct way to use these terms, but it is important. It's a good question. It's important to clarify your terms beforehand. Yeah, and that's one of the re the things that I actually really love about the study of metaethics is kind of clarifying what we mean by certain terms and helping us to understand how we're using terms and how they can even be received by other people when we say something is right or good or moral. And I know one of the things we've done in this podcast, I use them interchangeably well. I do that in the classroom, and I tell students kind of the first day that I'm going to use these interchangeably. You may read someone who sees a distinction there, but for our purposes, especially when we're introducing ethics, um, I don't draw any kind of real significant difference between the two. I know that specifically getting back to metaethics, um, the study of metaethics is it can be slightly controversial in some circles. I think in broader philosophical circles, it's obviously something that's well discussed, but in some other circles, it's not as popular. And part of it is because a little bit of the history of the discipline or the subdiscipline. Um, but then sometimes, uh, it's seen as kind of a, a new kind of speculative area of philosophy. And I know a lot of theologians also view kind of metaethics sometimes as kind of a merely speculative discipline, something that kind of just came on the scenes in the 19th and 20th century. But reality is, and I think you well document this in your works, is that we've been asking metaethical questions and we've had a lot of metaethical presuppositions for as long as there's, we've talked about right conduct and what's moral and right and good, we kind of engage in meta-ethical reflection. It's just sometimes we haven't slowed down to ask those questions. But one of the things I wanted to see if you could do is to help us to understand what is meta-ethics a little bit better. Because I know sometimes when ethics is taught, we kind of rush into normative ethics and then really quickly through that to applied ethics, which is where most of our listeners may be familiar when we talk about ethics, you know, 
issues of sexuality or issues of politics or issues of environmental or justice or a host of various issues that are really important in terms of the applied aspect. We've talked a little bit about the normative aspect, but what is metaethics proper? I know this is kind of a a main field for you. This is one of your main interests, primary interests in moral philosophy. So what is metaethics? What are some of those questions that we're asking and help us to orient, help orient us a little bit to that field? Well, let me do that by picking up on some of the remarks that you just made. Suppose that you've got a view about environmental justice, whatever that view happens to be. Then what what metaethics would do is it would invite you to reflect on the status of that view. What are you doing when you're judging that climate change is an immediate pressing moral issue that requires individual and, very importantly, collective concern in order to address uh, a dangerous situation that threatens future generations, for instance? Suppose that's part of your take on a matter of environmental justice. Now what a metaethicist would do is say, okay, what's going on when you register that sort of judgment. Are you merely expressing your personal preference? Is what you're doing in judging that we've got to take more or less immediate collective action? Let's assume, I know not everybody's going to agree to that, but just let's assume that's that's your judgment for purposes of illustration. What's going on when you make that judgment? Is it just that you are voicing something that is a matter of taste? Is that judgment more or less on a par with or akin to your preference for chocolate over vanilla, where, you know, someone else has a very different take on it, that's totally fine. Or alternatively, is it that instead there are standards of correctness out there and that your say-so doesn't make it so? And if there are standards of correctness such that your moral judgment could be right, but it could be mistaken too, then what's the nature of those standards? It's not the question that a normative ethicist would ask, namely, what are those standards? Is it, for instance, some principle of fairness like the golden rule or the utilitarian principle or something else? But rather, what's the status of those standards? Are those standards created by anyone, like a group of people? Are the, are the correct moral standards relative to cultural opinion or social opinion? Are they authored by God? Say, is there some other answer? Are they in some other way objective, not authored by God, but perhaps ratified by God? Or does God even play a role in that picture? These are the sorts of questions that metaethicists are going to ask about our moral judgments, not which ones actually are right or wrong, but what's, the, what's their fancy word coming, metaphysical status? What is it in reality in virtue of which these judgments are correct. Personal opinion, group opinion, divine opinion, no one's opinion. The, these are the options. That's the basic kind of metaphysical thrust of a meta-ethical meta inquiry. But then there are also epistemological issues here, that is, issues having to do with how we come to know or justifiably believe or understand the moral judgments that we're making. If morality is just a matter of personal opinion, then the question, how do we come to know what's right and wrong? Is super easy. Just do a gut check and you got it. But if morality is something more than that or something, something other than that, rather, then the question is, how do we gain access to the correct moral standards? And there's a, 
a huge literature about that. Uh, just to highlight another important feature, suppose someone is very morally wise and knows what's right and wrong. Then there's the question, why do what they know to be right? Is there any, is it, is it necessarily rationally commanded to follow the dictates of morality or might it be irrational in some cases to do what morality tells you to do? And there's, <laughs> unsurprisingly, there's a lot of debate about how to answer all these questions that I just enumerated. And I think that plays in, that kind of illustrates some of the complexity, but also some of the controversy over uh, these type of questions is because we're, we're challenging some kind of preset kind of presuppositions that many of us bring to these conversations. And we're kind of questioning ourselves and questioning these values, uh, which I think is really helpful. As you've said, and I've already mentioned, this is kind of one of your primary interests in moral philosophy in terms of metaethics. And you also edited, a, uh, you edit a fascinating series with Oxford University Press on the topic, kind of Oxford studies and metaethics, which I recommend listeners uh, to check out as well if they're interested in diving in a little bit deeper. Um, one of the things I wanted to see, though, is and something we do a lot here on the podcast is trying to understand a little bit of the history. I think metaethics as kind of a, a field of study uh, really came alive for me when I started to understand a little of the history. Uh, some of the major figures, some of the controversies, some of the debates they were having of their day. So could you tell us a little bit about where some of these questions started per se? And I know I'm not saying go back to the very beginning of time per se, because we've always had these questions. Help us to understand kind of the foundations and the history of metaethics as a discipline and some of maybe the most influential kind of key figures in the movement. Sure. As you, as you say, metaethical questions have been with us for as long as we've been thinking creatures. We've had moral or ethical, whatever you want to call them, opinions, and people have had such opinions for thousands of years. And when people had the opportunity to hit the pause button and critically reflect on their own views and those of others, they've naturally asked the questions that I just articulated. You know, what is it that makes moral judgments true, if any are true? Is, is morality just make believe? How do I know? you know, whether something's right or wrong. And even if I'm confident that this is what morality requires of me, why should I toe the moral line rather than go and do my own thing? So these sorts of questions have been around a long time. Plato and Aristotle both address them, but not systematically. Some of the great figures in the Western canon, Aquinas, Hume, Mill, Kant, have addressed these questions, but not in a fully systematic way. Really, the discipline of metaethics is quite recent. <laughs> it was uh, it was not in the, well, kind of inaugurated by the publication in 1903 of a book by G. E. Moore called Principia Ethica, where he took a pretty radical stand of a sort that I'm I'm quite uh, fond of myself, but it's very controversial, where he took a radical stand about the nature of goodness and and had a very long discussion about what the nature of goodness is, and he thought it was very, basically pretty platonic in nature. And after that discussion in 1903, that sparked a lot more direct attention to these meta-ethical questions. Still, throughout the first half, throughout really the first 70 years of the 20th century, Meta-ethical and normative ethical inquiry were very tightly intertwined in the way that they had been for centuries before that 
It was only in the 70s, really, the 1970s, where uh, folks were sort of stepping back and saying, look, there are these distinctive questions. Let's just tackle them, in some cases, at length within a book. And that's what that's when things really got going. So it's relatively, you know, as a sub, as a formally recognized subdiscipline, it's pretty new as in philosophical terms. Well, one of the things that I always try to do for my students is to help kind of map things out a little bit. I'm a visual person, a visual learner. And so seeing kind of how things connect and kind of different categories is actually really helpful for me. And you kind of set that up, especially early on in your work, Moral Realism. That's a really helpful work. I encourage listeners to check it out. And you describe that there are three main systems our main types of meta-ethical inquiry. One is nihilism, constructivism, and realism. I think these la- this language often gets thrown out a lot, especially in contemporary debate in terms of uh, nihilism. We often throw out terms like relativism and subjectivism, and often we don't always know exactly what we mean when we use those terms. Maybe we do, but maybe other people don't and have different understandings. So I was going to see if you could kind of introduce us to these main types, nihilism, constructivism, and realism, and how they shape the task of ethics. Sure. So nihilism is, as you rightly say, all these isms are used in many ways. Here's how I understand them. Nihilism, which term comes from the Latin nihil, which means nothing, is the view that there really isn't any moral reality out there awaiting our discovery. There is the world that science tells us about, and the world that science tells us about doesn't include values. If you take a look at any number of scientific journals, you're not going to see moral judgments made therein, moral judgments verified, tested, confirmed, or disconfirmed. So if you've got that kind of view, uh, what you what you can say is one of two things, basically. One is that you know, morality is all make-believe. There's a massive error in our moral thinking. We all think that when we make moral judgments, we're speaking the truth, at least when we're speaking sincerely, but we're all making a mistake. Uh, because there is no truth, because there are no moral values out there awaiting our discovery. Alternatively, you can say, no, there's no mistake going on, but still there's no moral reality going on either. Uh, It's just what morality's job is, is basically to vent our emotions and to try to persuade people to share our emotions. And morality does that just fine. We've, We've developed this fancy moral language, but this moral language is not describing anything real. It's just venting. So when you say, for instance, that the death penalty is immoral, if you were inclined to say that, all you're really doing is saying the death penalty, yuck, or boo. And that's not wrong, but that's not right. You're not saying anything that's capable of being true or false. So that's nihilism. And then there's constructivism. And each of these these three isms, nihilism, constructivism, realism, is a big tent itself containing a lot of sub-theories. But uh, within constructivism, the basic idea behind any constructivist theory is this. There is a moral reality, but it's constructed in some way. It's constructed by the attitudes of some relevantly specified person. So you had mentioned subjectivism and relativism. Subjectivism is the idea that each subject, each person, each individual is the ultimate authority about what's right and what's wrong. Their opinions, their feelings, their attitudes are determinative of whether an action is right or whether an action is wrong. Relativism is the idea that people construct morality, but it's not just each indiv- it's not each individual, it's rather groups. So you can have cultural relativism or social relativism, 
where it's the cultural mores or the society's guiding ideals that are determinative of what's right and wrong. They, those ideals are what the ultimate moral standards are. There are other forms of constructivism. You could say what's more, the moral standards are those that would be endorsed by fully informed, free, rational people to govern their communal lives together. That's what morality, that's what moral standards are. And then there's realism, which says that both constructivism and nihilism are mistaken. <laughs> there is a moral reality, but it's not constructed by anyone. Now, there's, this, there's a question of where God fits in here, and that question is vexed within, within metaethics. If you've got a view according to which God has authored the moral law, I think of that as a form of constructivism, because what it says is that there is some special, duly designated agent or person whose attitudes are definitive of what the correct moral standards are. Just so happens that this is a divine person rather than a, a human being. Other people think, no, you know, to have a divinely authored morality is really in the very, is the most objective kind of picture you can have of ethics. And that's where realists fall. They, they think of, of morality as very strongly objectivist in the sense that I've just used this new term, objectivist. What it is for a truth to be objective, as I use it, is for it to be true, but not, but not in virtue of anyone's attitude towards it, or anyone's opinion towards it. Although realists are in that last camp where they think that, just as an analogy, morality is in this respect, namely in being objectively correct, just like physics or logic. In other respects, morality is not like physics and logic. I, I want to hasten to add that. But in the sense that, you know, two plus two equals four, whether you think so or not. And even if someone's got, you know, s some society thinks that the earth is flat rather than round, they're wrong. There's an objective truth about this. So too in morality for realists, there are objective truths. I know you brought up the concept of a kind of expressivism or emotivism. I know sometimes that language is used interchangeably. Some listeners to the podcast may be familiar with emotivism uh, from their courses in ethics if they read like Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue. This is something he addresses pretty heavily and there is the emotivism. And we see this especially early on in the 20th century, emotivism, expressivism. I want to ask, is there a difference between those two? Or is, I know some will say expressivism is kind of the older version and emotivism is kind of the new version. It's in the new terminology per se, but is there a difference between expressivism and metaethics and uh, motivism? Just as a clarification, expressivism is the newfangled term. It came into vogue in the eighties and emotivism was the term that both AJ Ayer, a British philosopher and Charles Leslie Stevenson, an American philosopher used for their view in the mid when they introduced it in the mid 1930s. This is the view, although I didn't use, I didn't mention it by name. This is the second of the nihilist views that I would, that I had discussed according to which there is no moral reality. There no moral claims are true or false, but there's no moral error that there's, there's no error in our moral discourse and our moral thinking, because all we are trying to do is to persuade people. The emotivist doctrine that came out in the 30s is this view according to which all that we do in making a moral judgment is emote. We vent our emotions. We don't report that we feel a certain way when making a moral judgment. We rather just express our disgust or our approval or our endorsement or what, what have you. 
Um, expressivism is, is a term used for a descendant of, or a family of descendants of the emotivist view. They share this nihilistic outlook and they share the idea that morality's moral discourse is fundamentally aimed at not trying to represent the truth. So what else is it, what is it trying to do? And these folks have very complicated views. The most prominent proponents, just for listeners who might want to delve a little deeper, are Simon Blackburn and Alan Gibbard, both now retired, both alive, happily. Blackburn retired from Cambridge University in England and Gibbard from the University of Michigan. Uh, their work is challenging, but it's developed this I don't want to say an insight because I'm not sympathetic with this view, <laughs> but this basic idea that was developed in the 30s, they, uh, both Blackburn and Gibbard have developed this in very sophisticated ways in order to try to fend off a whole host of objections to the view. I know there were obviously some very strong reactions to a lot of the moral philosophy, especially coming out of Cambridge and Oxford in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, one of the areas that kind of my studies have taken me into is studying Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, and some other women who, in many ways, is according to Benjamin Liscombe, who just wrote a book with Oxford, uh, The Women Are Up to Something, kind of the women revolutionized ethics. But there was a pretty strong kind of response to a lot of this emotivism um, of the day where a lot of folks sought to kind of reestablish or, or reassert an objectivist type of uh, a view of philosophy or, if, excuse me, a view of morality. And often these kind of claims of an objectivist reality fall into one of two camps. Now, granted, I might use the language a little bit different than others, um, but to often an ethical naturalism or an ethical non-naturalism. And I know sometimes they're thrown out where God fits into this. Does God fit into more of a non-naturalist or, as you said, maybe into a constructivist thing? This is a little bit different. But as we talk about these two kind of primary families of naturalism and non-naturalism, how does that – what are the distinctions between those two views? And then how does that kind of shift how we talk about the nature of ethics as well? That's a really good question, and uh, I hope your listeners are not oversaturated with all these <laughs> isms that we're throwing at them. Well, one but, of the things that I'll say for listeners' sake is that go and get Dr. Schaefer Landau's book, The Fundamentals of Ethics, because you have a very, very helpful glossary in that book. <laughs> um, I always tell my students, I say, go and find these books, as a lot of these books that are challenging actually have a really good glossary at the end. So for listeners' sake, if you're getting a little overwhelmed, feel like you're drinking out of a fire hydrant, go and get that book. And you can make sure to get the full, uh, the, all those definitions there in the glossary. But I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 not at all. The notions of the, the terms non-naturalism and naturalism were actually introduced by that guy I, I mentioned maybe 10 minutes ago, G.E. Moore, George Edward Moore, whose Principia Ethica in 1903 set out a defense, a robust defense of ethical non-naturalism. The basic idea, of course, these being philosophical terms, they're subject to lots of philosophical debate about has, how best to formulate and characterize the positions. But the general idea is this, an ethical naturalist position is one according to which there's a moral reality out there, but it's wholly natural or naturalistic. Now, what is it to be naturalistic or natural? That is That itself is the subject of a lot of philosophical controversy. But just as a thumbnail, provisional rough sketch, the idea is that all moral truths, according to an ethical naturalist, are discoverable empirically. So you can use scientific means of theorizing, confirming, and disconfirming in order to determine what's right and wrong what's good and bad. 
and moral moral facts themselves are a subspecies of scientific fact. Whereas the non-naturalist disagrees. The non-naturalist, it's not that the non-naturalist thinks that science has no role to play whatever in moral inquiry, but the non-naturalist is going to shove science to the back, large, this again is rough, to the back burner and insist that morality is autonomous in the sense that while science is, is awesome, it's super cool, and it can tell us a lot about the way the world works, it can't tell us everything about the way the world works. And in particular, what it can't do is reveal to us what the fundamental moral truths or facts are. And when we think productively about ethical questions, we're not doing so in a scientific mode. You know, the folks, some folks in the 19th century used to talk about the moral sciences. And I, I gave a talk, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago at Cambridge University to the Moral Sciences Club. But this kind of moniker is really no, not any longer in fashion. That's not to say that ethical naturalism is out of fashion. There's still many people who are so impressed by the progress, the, the intellectual, theoretical power of science that they think that if anything is go, if we're going to be uh, make credible inquiries into any area, we've got to assimilate it to some scientific model. Uh, and so if we're going to make progress in our moral thinking, we've got to assimilate our moral thinking to, you know, some version of the scientific method. I myself am not sympathetic to that view, but there are a lot of super smart people who are trying to pursue that path. And then the non-naturalist is, is someone who says, no, ethics is not a science moral facts are not scientific facts. The evidence of our senses is not the primary basis for discerning the truth about what's good and bad, right or wrong. Well, I, for listener's sake, we'll take a breath and kind of pull our head above the water for a second. Uh, because one of the things that I've noticed, I hope listeners have picked up on this as you've been discussing and giving these answers, um, is that you're not only very precise, which I think is a trait of a good philosopher, um, but also you're very charitable and honest. And I noticed this throughout your writings that even when you disagree with a position, you say not only are those some, some hold this, but they also have strong arguments for holding that position. But one of the things that I, I really love about your work and reading the works that you put out is this intellectual charity and honesty as you're presenting views. While obviously you have your own views, you hold them very strongly, I hope, um, but you also engage in these kind of intellectual virtues, which is something that we've talked a lot about on the podcast is we engage these kind of big topics or engage other folks in society is to do so with charity and with honesty and kind of cultivating some of these, uh, these virtues. I want to ask, why is that important specifically in the field of philosophy? But specifically, why is it so important as you're addressing some, you know, honestly, really consequential ideas and sometimes very divisive ideas in our society in terms of ethics. Uh, why is kind of having that charity and that honesty as these intellectual virtues so key to that? Well, thanks for your, your kind words about my work. Uh, I think these virtues are super important for two reasons. One is a pragmatic reason and the other isn't really. The pragmatic reason is this, when you have a conversation with people First of all, it's often hard to get folks to be willing to engage in a conversation in the first place. The second thing is that once you get, you know, once you get them interested enough or willing enough to have a conversation, the last thing 
the last thing that could be productive there is for you to come in like a sledgehammer <laughs> and, and uh, you know, with an attitude that, you know, I got the truth, you don't. So here's our conversation. You listen, I'll talk. That's not going to be, so this is the pragmatic point. That's not going to be very productive, right? Um, but there's, there's actually, for me, there's a deeper point here uh, about the importance of these particular intellectual virtues. And that is that my own view is that there are real truths awaiting our discovery in philosophy, not just in metaethics, but in philosophy generally. There is a truth about the nature of morality. I hope it's the truth that I, <laughs> I hope it's the truth is as I believe it to be, namely that there's, you know, a robustly objective set of moral standards that I didn't make up. That nobody I know, you know, nobody around me in my in my neighborhood or outside my neighborhood made up either. But whether that's so is not up to me. Of course, it's incumbent on me as a professional philosopher, as a thinking person, to devote some time to worrying about this. And you know, I have the I'm so privileged in being able to spend my professional life thinking about this and getting paid to think about this and talk about this. But if you've got the, uh, my basic point here is this, I haven't, I haven't articulated it yet. It's this, if you think in a given area of inquiry about a particular topic or subject matter, that there are objective truths there, whether your subject matter is physics or history or economics or, or philosophy, if you think that, then your say so doesn't make it so. You've got to, you got to bow down to a reality that's not of your own making. And once we recognize that it's not of our own making, that should make us humble. That should make us anything but arrogant. I mean, especially in an area that's as complex as morality, but of course there are many areas that are super complex, to take an attitude, any attitude other than, oh, I there's no way I can know all of this. This is so hard. This is so complex. I have a finite number of years here. I've been doing this myself for 35 years, including grad school, and I'm touching the tip of the iceberg. There's so much I don't know. <laughs> and there's so much. Yeah, and I take a look at colleagues of mine who are much smarter than I. I got to say the same thing about them, too. There's so much that they don't know because there's so much to know. And we're such finite, limited creatures. So to me, that's the only reasonable response to that to that situation is humility. Yeah. If my students hear anything from me in the classroom, I often hope that they walk away with that deep understanding of epistemic humility, not only the limits of what you don't know, um, but also in what you do know to be very humble and gracious about as you engage other people in debate, because we are debating very consequential, very, very important issues that are often very, very divisive. Um, but the way we carry ourselves matters. And specifically as a Christian, it matters. Um, and it should matter as we're trying to honor the Lord and everything we do. Um, the way we go about these debates is very, very important. And that's one of the things that I noticed in your work. And I want to encourage you in that. Uh, that was very striking to me, actually, is reading a lot of philosophy. Is That's not always uh, a given. So 
obviously we have just barely scratched the surface. I mean, we literally went through some terms to understand kind of the nature of this and kind of frame things out in terms of the landscape of ethics and metaethics. But as we end our time together, I always try to do the same thing and to provide some resources, some text, some primary articles, um, specifically metaethics that you think would be helpful for folks. As I said, a lot of us may be familiar with normative ethics or applied ethics, but in terms of metaethics, that's something we don't often spend as much time on. And I think we should. And I think that's one of the things that I appreciate about your work. But what are some of the primary sources that you would recommend, whether it's text or articles or books, volumes that you would recommend if folks are are interested in digging a little bit deeper? What are maybe three or four resources that you would recommend? Well, unfortunately, there's there's almost nothing written for the layperson to introduce them to metaethics. I wrote a book about 20 years ago called Whatever Happened to Good and Evil, which is designed for people who've never done any philosophy before to introduce them to some of these ideas. After that, there are a number of good collections, but these collections are collections of professional philosophers writing for fellow philosophers. They become seminal articles. Before I mention a couple of those, let me mention a book by a guy named Mark Van Royen, R-O-O-J-E-N, a terrific philosopher at the University of Nebraska, who wrote an introduction to metaethics. That's written for people who have some familiarity with philosophy, but it will give you a, a, a beautiful sense of the, the terrain. And he's a very clear writer, a very sharp philosopher. So that might be uh, another place to look if you've got a little bit of philosophy under your belt. There is a classic collection by uh, three philosophers who uh, used to work at the University of Michigan, Steve Darwall, Alan Gibbard, who I mentioned earlier, and Peter Railton. Uh, I'm forgetting the title right now. It's Moral Discourse and Moral Theory, maybe, some, something like that. It came out in the late 90s, and that's just got a, a whole host of juicy, meta, classic meta-ethical papers there. I also edited a collection with a uh, colleague, Terence Cuneo, from the University of Vermont, called The Foundations of Ethics, where we collect a lot of the classic pieces, but we also offer some hopefully helpful introductions uh, that are pitched to people who've never taken meta-ethics before. So that's, that's a place to start. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And for listeners' sake, we'll make sure to include all of those in the show notes. One of the things that I'll I'll do a selfish plug is that a few weeks ago, we actually announced a new series that I'm going to be co-editing with a colleague, uh, Ben Mitchell, called Essentials in Christian Ethics. So from a specifically Christian perspective, as you said, there's not as many introductions to meta-ethics in general. But when you get into kind of the Christian understanding of things, there's very, very little, even just on meta-ethics in general, much less some introductions. So one of the volumes that we're really excited to include are uh, two philosophers from Biola University, J.P. Moreland, as well as David Horner, who are going to be writing an introduction to meta-ethics from a Christian perspective. It's due out in a few years. Uh, The series will start launching uh, with a volume on natural law next year, next fall, but it's called Essentials in Christian Ethics from uh, B&H Academic. that I have a privilege to co-edit with Dr. Mitchell. So, uh, but we'll make sure to link to all of those, including those really helpful resources that you mentioned in the show notes for listeners. Um, but I just want to say thank you so much, one, for your work. Uh, this has been a really fun conversation. I think it's kind of enlightening, not only for me, but also for uh, listeners' sake as well, as they're kind of being introduced to a lot of these big terms. But thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and teaching schedule to join us here on the Digital Public Square. It's been my great pleasure. Thanks very much for having me.
Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, connect with Dr. Schaefer Lindau and learn more about his books, The Fundamentals of Ethics and Moral Realism, as well as the recommended resources we talked about on moral philosophy in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.